the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Today we're going to talk with Lois Anderson. She is executive director of Oregon Right to Life. She is currently in Washington, D.C., preparing to participate in the March for Life. That's on Friday. We'll also talk about the Oregon Right to Life Memorial and March that's coming up on Saturday. And you might note the the day change. Typically over the years of the memorial and March, it's been held on a Sunday. This year they're switching it to Saturday. So Make sure you have that straight on your calendar. And Sanctity of Human Life Day is coming up. That's this Sunday. We'll also talk about the Oregon legislature and whether or not there is a possibility of any kind of pro-life agenda uh, given the supermajority that is there. So we'll get into that. Also, we'll tell you about a uh, part of the uh, governor's um, a budget. Uh, Oregon may, in fact, become the first state with universal home visits that are mandatory. We'll tell you more about that later in the program as well. Well, first, taking a look at some of the news headlines, a new U.S.-bound caravan that formed in Honduras quickly grew to approximately 2,000 people as it made its way toward Mexico. Mexicans who live along the border towns that will likely be most affected were not very happy and took to the Internet to lash out against another wave of migrants. Mexico is just like your country-run resident um, Said, there are many problems and needs, and you're not going to be much better off than you were in Honduras. Please don't trust these manipulative agitators who are encouraging you to risk everything for nothing. Well, as uh, word of the new caravan and its growth spread back in Washington, the opposing side in the partial government shutdown sides, I should say, continued to stand their ground with no sign of a compromise, no end in sight. The president said that a drone flying around will not stop the new migrant caravan, doubling down on his claims that only a wall will work. Meanwhile, congressional Democrats rejected the president's invitation to a lunch meeting at the White House to discuss border security. And the president's pick to become the next attorney general deserves bipartisan support. At least that's the outcome from yesterday's hearing, the confirmation hearing with William Barr, the president's pick for U.S. Attorney General before the Senate Judiciary Committee saw few fireworks. Senator Lindsey Graham, who heads the committee, conceded that Democrats had asked appropriate questions. However, Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat from Connecticut, charged that Barr had indicated he would exploit legal loopholes to hide special counsel Robert Mueller's final report from the public and to resist subpoenas against the White House. You'd have to listen a little bit sideways to have got that conclusion. But nonetheless, that's what he has concluded. In an op-ed for FoxNews.com, David Bossy, former deputy chairman of the 2016 Trump campaign, said that if Democrats oppose Barr as attorney general, they would oppose anyone Trump endorses. It would mean, Bossy writes, that they hate this president more than they love our country, end quote. Meanwhile, U.S. Senator Kristen, or rather Kirsten Gillibrand, a Democrat from New York, announced during Tuesday's taping of Stephen Colbert's Late Show that she's formed an exploratory committee for a 2020 presidential run, reversing her previous uh, reassurance that she would continue to serve in the Senate instead. I mean, that's just absolutely shocking that a member of the Senate would at one point say, no, I'm not running, I have no interest in running, and then at some point later announce 
Yeah, there's an exploratory committee. I'm thinking about it. Well, Gillibrand, 52, will be entering an increasingly crowded field of Democrats seeking to unseat President Trump. She spoke largely in generalities on Tuesday as she vowed to take a powerful special interests, take on powerful special interests and work on behalf of children. Uh, it's been learned that Gillibrand is um, heading to Iowa, which hosts the pivotal first in the nation caucuses on Friday for a meeting and fundraiser with local Democrats. And a federal judge ruled on Tuesday that former National Security Advisor Susan Rice and former Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes must answer written questions about the State Department's response to the deadly 2012 terror attack in Benghazi, Libya, as part of an ongoing legal battle over whether Hillary Clinton sought to deliberately evade public records laws by using a private email server while Secretary of State. U.S. District Judge Royce Lamberth denied a request by the conservative group Judicial Watch to make Rice and Rhodes sit for depositions, but agreed to have them answer written questions. He also agreed to Judicial Watch's request to depose the State Department about the preparation of talking points for Rice, then-President Barack Obama's ambassador to the United Nations, ahead of appearances on political talk shows the Sunday following that attack. And Brexit in chaos. Britain's prime minister faced a no-confidence vote and survived. Uh, Theresa May suffered a crushing defeat on Tuesday as Parliament overwhelmingly rejected her Brexit deal with the European Union, a defeat that places the future of Brexit in doubt and intensifies calls for her ouster via a general election. Her withdrawal agreement was voted down 432 to 202, the largest defeat for a prime minister in the history of the House of Commons. May was expected to lose, but the extent by which she lost was significant and marked a devastating blow to her leadership and her ability to go back to Brussels and negotiate further concessions. Jeremy Coburn, a leader of the opposition Labor Party, immediately tabled a motion of no confidence in the government, which is likely... Um, uh, I should say, which was debated today as she survived it. Uh, if it had passed, it could eventually lead to a, a snap general election if another government is not formed within two weeks. That won't be necessary because she did survive that vote. But whether or not she will survive as prime minister is a wholly different question. And on this day in 2007... Senator Barack Obama, Democrat from Illinois, launched his bid for the White House. And on this day in 1991, White House, the White House announces the start of Operation Desert Storm to drive Iraq out of Kuwait. Allied forces would prevail on the 28th of February, 1991. And on this day in 1920, prohibition begins in the United States as the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which banned the manufacture, sale or transportation of alcoholic beverages. It took effect one year to the day after its ratification that would later be repealed by the 21st Amendment. Well, since 1993, the president has formally recognized January 16th as Religious Freedom Day, the day that marks the anniversary of the passage of the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, which cut formal ties between the Church of England and the state of Virginia. In an age of hyper-partisanship, Religious Freedom Day offers all Americans, religious and non-religious, an opportunity to celebrate and renew our commitment to safeguarding principles we've historically agreed on, religious liberty and conscience protection. Drafted by Thomas Jefferson and passed into law in 1786, the Virginia statute disestablished the state of uh, the state church, rather abolished parish taxes and protected the civil rights of citizens to express their religious beliefs without fear of censure or reprisal. A precursor to the First Amendment, the Virginia law recognized the pursuit of religious truth as a basic human good and acknowledged that citizens should be free to live out their faith without imposition from the government. The law also anticipated Article 6 of the Constitution, which states 
that there shall be no religious test for anyone seeking to serve in public office. Now, someone might want to tell uh, Senate Democrats who have uh, sought to impose a Catholic test on several uh, nominees. Because religious freedom is largely taken for granted today, it's easy to forget the radical nature of Jefferson's proposal when he first made it 233 years ago at a time when um, uh, whose realm his religion was still the dominant way of uh, con- conceiving the relationship between church and state. Thomas Jefferson argued that religion is inherently an interior matter between an individual and God and that consequently faith cannot be coerced. The state has no business, he went on to say, interfering with man's quest for religious truth because God, not the state, is Lord of the conscience. Moreover, true faith requires sincere adherence to specific doctrines. The state cannot force anyone to believe. While people may feign belief to avoid punishment, the state can never affect genuine belief at the level of conscience. Therefore, civil liberty, civil authorities, rather should allow for the free flow of religious opinion and use uh, persuasion, not coercion, to encourage belief in God. Well, historically, America's commitment to religious freedom has enjoyed broad support. In fact, in 1993, when the issue was again brought to the nation's attention by the Supreme Court decision in Employment Division versus Smith, Congress responded by passing the Religious Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA, with a bipartisan consensus. Then Congressman Charles Schumer drafted the House bill. In the Senate, the bill was introduced by uh, Ted Kennedy. The law passed unanimously in the House uh, of Representatives and by a vote of 97 to 3 in the U.S. Senate and was signed into law by President Bill Clinton. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Two minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Lois Anderson. She's executive director of Oregon Right to Life. We'll talk about the March for Life that's taking place in Washington, D.C. this Friday. She's there. In fact, we'll be talking to her from Washington, D.C. We'll also talk about the Oregon Right to Life March and uh, Memorial and March. That's coming up this Saturday. And the Sanctity of Life Day, which is Sunday. The Oregon legislative agenda and whether or not there's any uh, room for pro-life initiatives. We'll talk with her about all of that when she joins us in the five o'clock hour. Well, Christians suffered an increase in persecution last year with 245 million facing violence or oppression around the world, 30 million more than a year ago. Now, that's an easy headline to read, but it's a difficult one to swallow. Let me repeat that because it's not like um, strangers. We're talking about people to whom we are connected Uh, As the scripture describes, Christians suffered an increase in persecution last year with 245 million facing violence or oppression around the world, 30 million more than last year. Open Doors, which is a Dutch charity, and by the way, they're going to be at Mission Connection on Friday and Saturday um, uh, this weekend. Uh, they're a Dutch charity that published a report in um, into Christian persecution. It said millions more Christians in India and China had been targeted uh, this last year. Well, there's also been a compilation of the top countries where it's hardest to follow Jesus. Christian persecution has worsened in the most populous countries in the world, as I mentioned, China and India, putting millions more believers at risk for their faith. The two Asian countries moved up on Open open Doors, uh, annual ranking of the 50 countries where it's hardest to be a Christian. India entered the World Watch 
the list uh, in their top 10 for the first time due to a growing Hindu nationalist threat stirring anti-Christian sentiment there. And meanwhile, China, where the communist government continues closing major congregations, detaining Christian leaders, that climbed from number 43 to number 27 on that list. Now, researchers calculate that one in three Asian Christians now experience high levels of persecution for their faith. Now, year after year, Open Doors has reported on the dead, the decline rather of religious freedom for Christians worldwide, measuring persecution through government restrictions, social pressures, outright violence, and even uh, death. The latest World Watch list indicates that religious freedom restrictions have also become more widespread, affecting one in nine Christians worldwide. An estimated 245 million of us in the 50 countries on this year's ranking experience high levels of persecution compared to 215 million last year. The rise corresponds with the Pew Research Center's 2018 report on the global rise in religious antagonism overall, which found that 83 percent of the population lives in places with high or very high religious restrictions, since some of the more uh, the most restrictive countries, again, China and India, are also the world's largest. The worsening restrictions represent the biggest surge in religious hostility in over a decade According to Pew, well, the world watch lists, their number one spot has gone to the same uh, to the same place for 18 years running. And that, of course, is North Korea, where Christianity is banned altogether. I know it's uh, quite popular for communist countries to say Christianity is not welcome here, but you cannot uh, prevent the gospel from doing what only the gospel can do with the power of the Holy Spirit fueling uh, the gospel moving from place to place. Besides North Korea and India. Uh, at number 10, all others at the top of the rankings are majority Muslim countries with a Christian minority, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Sudan, Eritrea, Yemen, and Iran. Even though China doesn't yet rank among the worst offenders on Open Door's list, the swift actions by the government to reshape um, uh, Christianity represent a mounting threat to the world's biggest persecuted church. We are watching China and India very close, Open Doors USA President and CEO David Curry is quoted as saying. The distressing impact of billions of people living in an environment in which the government oppresses freedom of religion is unraveling day by day as millions of Christians are being attacked, imprisoned, and killed. India's place on the world watch list has risen steadily since it first broke the top 20 in 2014. The same year, current Prime Minister Narendra Modi took office. Now at number 10, the predominantly Hindu nation, about 80 percent of the population, scored the highest for persecution in national life and in violence against Christians. It was hoped that the persecution of Christians in uh, Hindu, or rather by Hindu radicals, would slow down a bit, but these hopes were in vain. Hindu radicals have continued their attacks and even increased them, according to Open Doors, which cited anti-conversion laws passed in eight states and regulations targeting Christian-led institutions. I was in India just weeks ago, and uh, when I read this statistic, when I Uh, review what's being said here. I'm reminded of individual names and faces and places where the gospel is being proclaimed effectively and the challenges they face. I know that many of you have financially supported uh, ministries in this area, in both of those areas for that matter. And uh, it is a reminder that we, in addition to doing what we can in tangible ways, can certainly pray uh, for them as well.
Well, Modi's uh, political party has been associated with discrimination against Christians as well as Dalit, Muslim and tribal minorities. Last year, World Watch Monitor chronicled vandalism against church buildings, retaliation for conversions, raid on worship services, other anti-Christian activity, particularly in India, most populous state in Uttar Pradesh. Uh, India and its neighbor Pakistan, which ranked number five on the overall list, have the highest levels of violence among the top ten. After Pakistan, Christians in Nigeria and the Central African Republic experienced the most violence last year. China scored its worst in the category for church life with open doors, uh, noting that the management of religious affairs lies with the Communist Party now, not with the government. And Christians are feeling this strongly in both state-approved and non-registered churches. In 2018, China restricted online Bible sales, attempted to force surveillance on churches, closed three uh, prominent underground congregations and detained their leaders. Uh, says... Um, uh, Pastor Wang Yi, who was arrested late last year after officials raided Early Rain Covenant Church in Chengdu in a viral letter on his uh, faithful uh, obe- disobedience, said, I accept and respect the fact that this communist regime has been allowed by God to rule temporarily. At the same time, I believe that this communist regime's persecution against the church is a great, uh, great wickedness, unlawful action. Well, around the same time as Yi's detention, Andrew Walker, senior fellow in a Christian ethics for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention traveled to the United Nations office in uh, Geneva to advocate for victims of religious persecution in China as well as North Korea, saying that when it comes to a notorious human rights offender like China, a country always interested in consolidating power, it's possible to see the rise of religious persecution as a part of a broader, growing anti-democratic impulse to crack down on the growth of Christianity. When consolidating power and erasing dissent in, this, in the name of the game of, for political regime, you can always count on religion in general and Christianity in particular to be a victim. Well, according to Open Doors, Christianity's victim status among the most severe violations of religious freedom isn't improving. Each country in the top 10 either scored higher for persecution or held steady over the past year. And that list in order, order of their appearance on that list. And uh, again, they list 50. I'll only give you the top 10. Uh, North Korea at number two, Afghanistan at, uh, excuse me, North Korea at number one, Afghanistan at number two, Somalia, followed by Libya, Pakistan, Sudan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, and finally at number 10, India. Mission Connection, which takes place uh, this Friday and Saturday, the theme is worth it. And it begs the question and both makes the statement, yes, worth it, and begs the question, worth it, with a question mark following and we're going to explore the uh, uh, the role of persecution in the church in various places around the world. It's a great opportunity uh, to become better education, uh, educated and aware of what's happening. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, U.S. troops were among those killed in an attack in northern Syria today, the same day that Vice President Mike Pence said ISIS, which claimed responsibility for the attack, had been defeated. The U.S.-led coalition in Syria, Operational Inherent Resolve, said a tweet that uh, said in a tweet that U.S. service members were killed during an explosion while conducting a routine patrol in Syria today. A U.S. military official also confirmed um, the national defense correspondent David Martin for CBS News uh, that Kurt and Kurdish uh, media confirmation that outlets, um, uh, the two Americans rather, were among the dead in the city of Manbij, 
uh, not far from the Turkish border after an explosion hit a coalition convoy. Now, there had been uh, had been some speculation that uh, of the numbers, two or four. The U.S. military has uh, not said how many Americans were among the bombing victims, but at least one report said that as many as four U.S. members were killed. If true, Martin um, notes that it would be the single largest loss of U.S. life in Syria since American forces were deployed in 2015. The attack came just weeks after President Trump declared ISIS defeated and said U.S. troops were coming home. Speaking to a gathering of U.S. ambassadors at the State Department on Wednesday after the Pentagon confirmed the deaths of American troops in Syria, the vice president repeated both of Mr. Trump's assertions. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders told CBS News on Wednesday that Mr. Trump has been fully briefed and we will continue to monitor the ongoing situation in Syria. She referred all additional questions to the U.S. military. Manbij is just 20 miles from the border with Turkey in an area held by Kurdish forces allied with the United States military coalition fighting ISIS. The terror group's self-styled news agency, Amak, Uh, claimed online that the attack was carried out by a member of the group wearing a suicide vest. The U.S. has about 2,000 troops still in Syria, though the president has ordered a withdrawal that is expected to be completed within four months. Turkish President Recep Erdogan said Tuesday that the Trump administration had assured him in a phone conversation that the U.S. was in the process of pulling its troops out of Syria, appearing to tamp down tension between the two nations, which manifested itself just hours earlier in a testy exchange of tweets. Now, this runs counter to what uh, Donald Trump, the candidate, said he would uh, do as uh, president of the United States, as commander in chief, and that would be to signal ahead of time what he was going to do with regard to troop movements. Um, and aggressive action. Well, Turkey wants the remaining American forces in Syria to come out, which would give uh, the Turks free reign to launch offensive operations against Kurdish militia in Syria's north. But many of those Kurdish fighters are U.S. allies who've been crucial to the fight against ISIS. The Trump administration has made guarantees for their security, a precondition of the complete U.S. withdrawal from Syria. How all of that is going to be possible remains to be seen. President Erdogan told uh, his nation's lawmakers uh, on Tuesday that he had told Mr. Trump the U.S. allied YPG Kurdish militia tortures the groups in Syria that do not depend on them and that his government had shared its evidence that America's allies are, in fact, terrorists with the White House. Well, the Trump administration has not backed away from its insistence that the Kurds of the YPG be protected, nor has it officially backed away from Mr. Trump's decision to pull U.S. troops out of Syria, though that process is happening far slower than the president had initially suggested. In the meantime, as uh, CBS correspondent Charlie Degate reported this week, there's been an increase in the intensity of the battle against ISIS holdouts. The YPG-led Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, are making the most of U.S. military support while they still have it. Administration officials have stressed that the outcome of the battle against ISIS is not reliant on the physical presence of the roughly 2,000 U.S. forces in Syria. But uh, the reporter said the Americans have played a vital role in the fight on the ground. They provide not only uh, tactics, weapons and equipment, but crucially, they also direct air stri- strikes rather against ISIS targets. Nagate and his team witnessed that for themselves on a broad, uh, rather on board the American aircraft carrier USS John Stennis last week. 
from the waters of the Persian Gulf, a wave after wave of F-18 fighter jets rocketed uh, into the sky to launch bombing raids against ISIS targets in Iraq and in Syria. The Kurdish fighters who spoke to the reporter in northern Syria are not only concerned with the withdrawal of U.S. troops and that uh, it could enable an ISIS comeback, but that Turkish forces will go on the attack the moment the last American soldier leaves, which, of course, Erdogan has already made clear he intends to do. Well, the Trump administration on Tuesday said it's called back tens of thousands of federal workers to fulfill key government tasks, including uh, dispersing tax refunds, overseeing flight safety and inspecting the nation's food and drug supply as it seeks to blunt the impact of the longest uh, government shutdown in U.S. history. Nearly 50,000 furloughed federal employees, which is another word for unpaid, are being brought back to work without pay, part of a group of about 800,000 federal workers who are not receiving paychecks during the shutdown, which is affecting dozens of federal agencies, large and small. A federal judge on Tuesday rejected a bid by unions representing air traffic controllers and other federal workers to force the government to pay them if they're required to work. Well, the efforts by the Trump administration to keep the government operating during the partial shutdown came as the White House and Congress made no progress toward resolving their underlying dispute. The president extended an unusual lunch invitation to a handful of rank-and-file House Democrats in an effort to woo them and create a divide within the Democratic camp over the shutdown. But the lawmakers rebuffed that outreach. As Democratic leaders voiced concern, the meeting would prove little more than a photo opportunity bolstering the president. With Democrats in the House pushing forward with bills to reopen the government, the president seesawing from one strategy to another to win funding for his border wall, and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell sitting on the the uh, sitting out the battle three uh, all three appeared to um uh agree that there's no path forward opening the government as the partial shutdown uh, goes into its 25th day the differing development um, left a discordant image in Washington politicians uh, political leaders were paralyzed over a way to end the impasse the federal government itself was looking for ways to show flexibility in determining who can and cannot work and with the judge support they can apparently call workers back without a benefit of being paid well the president struck a defiant tone in a call on Tuesday afternoon with supporters according to audio of the call obtained by the Washington Post, urging them to call uh, Democrats and voice support for the border wall and pledging, we're going to win. Uh, They're not being paid right now because of the Democrats, the president said. His version of events, whereas the Democrats are suggesting the president's intransigence is is, uh, ultimately behind the fact that federal employees are not being paid. So you can pick your side. Bottom line is 50,000 employees were called back to work unpaid as the shutdown drags on. Meanwhile, Speaker Nancy Pelosi asked the president uh, to reschedule his State of the Union address or deliver it in writing as long as the government remains shut down. Well, Pelosi, in asking the president to reschedule, um, uh, is citing security concerns, but Democrats also don't want to uh, give the president a platform to blame them for the shutdown. Well, House Speaker Pelosi took the extraordinary step, the first time in our nation's history, to urge the president to delay his State of the Union address until the partial government shutdown ends or submit the address in writing or deliver it from the Oval Office. Pick your uh, poison. The president has been uh, slated to deliver his um, televised annual address, which, by the way, was not always televised. Obviously, the television wasn't always available, but even um, uh, before 
Uh, when radio was very popular, it wasn't always made public. It was generally given to members of Congress in writing. The president's been slated to deliver his televised annual address to a joint session of Congress on the 29th, but with no compromise in sight to resolve the standoff over government funding, a stalemate that extended into its 26th day. With the impact deepening for furloughed federal workers and others, uh, the speaker, who's the third in line in terms of authority, suggested the president put those plans on hold. Now, she uh, this is what typically happens. She invites the speaker, invites the president into her house and uh, he accepts that invitation. And the State of the Union is the result. She didn't exactly withdraw the invitation, but did make the suggestion. Well, on January 3rd, it was my privilege as speaker to invite you to deliver the State of the Union, she wrote on uh, January 29th. The Constitution calls for the president from time to time to give the Congress information on the State of the Union, Pelosi wrote, but noted that since the start of modern budgeting in fiscal year 1977, a State of the Union address has never been delivered during a government shutdown. She concluded, sadly, given the security concerns and unless the government reopens this week, I suggest that we work together to determine another suitable date after government has reopened for the address or for you to consider delivering your State of the Union address in writing to Congress on uh, January 29th. Well, she detailed the need for proper security at events such as the State of the Union, citing comments uh, made by the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen, who recognized the need for the full resources of the federal government to be brought to bear to ensure the security of these events. Well, the U.S. Secret Service was designated as the lead federal agency responsible for coordinating, planning, exercising and implementing security for national uh, special security events, Pelosi wrote. However, both the U.S. Secret Service and the Department of Homeland Security have not been funded for 26 days now, with critical departments hamstrung by furloughs. Well, despite her suggestion to come to an agreement on a new date, uh, she didn't rescind the president's invitation. That decision ultimately rests with her as Speaker of the House. The address historically has not always been delivered in person. Thomas Jefferson started the practice of submitting the address in writing and was not until um, Woodrow Wilson's administration that the speech was delivered in person again. We don't know yet uh, what the response will be from the White House, but there you have it. The suggestion has been made. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 45 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. A reminder, in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life. We'll talk about a number of events surrounding the Sanctity of Human Life Week, beginning with uh, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. That's coming up this week. The National March for Life in Washington, D.C. on Friday. And the Oregon Memorial, um, Oregon Right to Life Memorial and March this Saturday. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. After our top of the hour break, we'll talk with Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life. There's the March for Life coming up on Friday in Washington, D.C., and Oregon's version on Saturday, Sanctity of Human Life Day, Sunday. And, of course, we'll talk about the Oregon Legislature. Well, William Barr, the president's nominee to be the next attorney general, not only survived his eight-hour Senate confirmation hearing on Tuesday, but left it with a strong chance of picking up some Democratic votes as well. His, he assured uh, um, those who were in attendance uh, on day one before the Senate Judiciary Committee was a welcome relief for the president after the ferocious battle last fall to get Brett Kavanaugh onto the Supreme Court. Well, the smooth confirmation, relatively, of a new attorney general seemed unimaginable last year. 
Uh, when Democrats warned that Trump's uh, decision to fire Jeff Sessions had sparked a constitutional crisis, of course, everything's a crisis these days amid fears that the president was looking to take control of the ongoing investigation and to whether he colluded with Russia to win the election in 2016. But Barr told Democrats repeatedly that he wants special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation to continue. He's a personal friend of some 30 years and conclude uh, without interference. He said he believes Russia tried to interfere with the election and that a final report is needed. And he said he wouldn't let Trump tweak the final report before a summary of it is made public. Uh, Barr, who was uh, George Herbert Walker Bush's attorney general in the early 1990s, also pledged that he wouldn't be bossed around by Trump or anyone else, members of Congress, for example. I'm not going to do anything that I think is wrong, and I will not be bullied into doing anything I think is wrong by anybody, whether it be editorial boards or Congress or the president. He told the Senate Judiciary Committee, I'm going to do what I think is right. Well, the statement seemed to leave Democrats satisfied that the senior official from another era was about as good as they could uh, do. And many uh, left open to the idea that they could, in fact, vote for him. Diane Feinstein at one point offered a snack to a weary grandson of Barr's who was sitting behind him uh, in a suit. One point of contention was a memo he sent to the Justice Department and shared or discussed with White House lawyers in 2018 in June Uh, The solicited memo, rather the unsolicited memo, described Mueller's possible investigation into obstruction of justice by Trump as fatally misconceived. But Barr called the memo narrow in scope and said it was only meant to cover one possible interpretation of obstruction. He said it was written without any assistance and based solely on public information. Uh, Another rough patch for Democrats was when he declined to say he would recuse himself from overseeing the Mueller investigation if he were confirmed. He said that decision is for him to make once he's confirmed. But his defense of Mueller's work and his belief that Mueller uh, would not be involved in a witch hunt, in quotes, seemed um, to open the door to winning some Democrat votes. There are still some fundamental issues involving his June memo, and for me, particularly the issue of immigration. It's a quote from Minority Whip Senator Dick Durbin. But the um, Illinois Democrat did call Barr a strong witness. Senator Amy Klobuchar, a Democrat from Minnesota, said she will decide after the full confirmation hearings if she will vote for Barr. I continue to be concerned about his early writings, the memo, and also how that relates to decisions about the release of the report and a full release uh, as well as some immigration issues. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse said Barr did pretty well. I couldn't say that yet, uh, the Rhode Island Democrat said when asked if he would vote for him. Republicans have a 53-47 majority in the Senate, but... Uh, Rather so, they don't need the Democratic vote to confirm him as long as they avoid more than three defections. But committee chairman Lindsey Graham said that he's hopeful that Democrats will come along with GOP senators in the final vote. It would be refreshing to see that uh, occur. When it comes to policy, you can't expect a Republican nominee to adopt the Democratic agenda, uh, Graham said. We would hope as a... Uh, the attorney general, he wouldn't adopt an agenda at all. Uh, But you can expect them to be fair arbiters of the law. I'm asking no more Democrats than I ask of myself. I am hopeful Democrats will support this fine man, and we will know at some point in the not-too-distant future. Meanwhile, Democratic Representative Maxine Waters issued a fresh warning to Wall Street on Wednesday as she outlined her agenda as the new chairwoman of the House Financial Services Committee, saying she won't let the banks and financial institutions run amok and lead the country into another crisis. 
Speaking at the Center for American Progress Action Fund in Washington, the California lawmaker promised to protect working Americans from big banks. The crisis was a result of Wall Street running amok, Walters said, in reference to the 2008 financial crisis, where there were several reasons for that, and some of it stemmed from decisions imposed on them by Congress, but that's another subject. Large Wall Street banks uh, are not subject to anybody and do great damage to our economy. Well, Waters, a frequent and vocal critic of the president and his administration, now has some in the financial industry on edge given her newly obtained congressional powers, especially after the sector benefited from the Trump administration's rollback of financial regulations implemented after the last session. Now, keep in mind, she is the chairman of that House committee, um, but the Senate is still majority Republican. So there's going to be some uh, headbutting along the way. Well, there are two big marches this week in Washington, but I suspect you'll uh, only hear about one. The 46th Annual March for Life will take place Friday, January 18th. Speakers will include Abby Johnson, Ben Shapiro, Dr. Alveda King, yes, the uh, niece of Dr. Martin Luther King uh, Jr., Senator Steve Daines, uh, Representative Chris Smith, uh, Dan Lipinski, uh, State Representative Katrina Jackson, those are two Republicans, two Democrats. Vice President Mike Pence will address the annual Rose Dinner Friday evening. You can learn more about the march uh, in our conversation with Lois Anderson coming up uh, after the top of the hour break. But in stark contrast to Friday's events celebrating the sanctity of life, the pro-abortion anti-Trump Women's March, if in fact it takes place, there's been a lot of controversy up to this point, uh, will take place the following day on Saturday, January 19th. And while the media will ignore the March for Life, there will be wall-to-wall coverage of the Women's March. Uh, but here's something most of the uh, media on the left won't tell you. The Progressive Women's March has a big problem with anti-Semitism. Many Jewish women are boycotting the Women's March, and for good reason. In fact, the DNC and several other organizations have withdrawn their support. I think they're down to about half of what they had last year. Its leaders have publicly praised Louis Farrakhan, head of the Nation of Islam. Farrakhan has been denounced by the Anti-Defamation League as America leading anti, America's rather leading anti-Semite. Tamika Mallory, uh, one of the co-leaders of the Women's March, appeared on The View on Monday. And incredibly, she doubled down on her defense of Farrakhan as the greatest of all time. Really, Louis Farrakhan is the greatest of all time. As an African-American, I find that disturbing. And while disagreeing with his bigoted remarks against Jews, she repeatedly refused to condemn his comments. And I would add his disparaging remarks about Christianity and Christians as well. Well, radical Palestinian activist Linda uh, Sarsour is another co-leader of the Women's March. During a speech last month in Sacramento, she denounced President Trump as a fascist and condemned him for moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. Is it possible to be a pro-Israel fascist? Well, Sarsour said, I will declare to all of you here in Sacramento that Jerusalem is and always will be the capital of Palestine. Uh, last time I checked, Palestine was just a post-it note in Representative Rashida Tlaib's office. Well, uh, Sarsour Sar was just uh, getting warmed up. She said, my beloved prophet Muhammad was a human rights activist. Um, he's been called a lot of things, but I've never heard him called quite that. She also declared that Islam was the solution to every progressive cause, uh, saying we don't need a workers' rights movement for an environmental justice movement. We don't even need Black Lives Matter movement because our religion has taught us that Black Lives Mattered way before there was ever a hashtag. Our religion has always been an anti-racist, feminist, and empowering religion. Wow, that's a very progressive view of uh, Islam. I don't need people in the United States of America to teach me what feminism is. Anyway, it went on from that. That march will get a great deal of attention and its leaders as well. Uh, the March for Life, I'm guessing 
not so much. Um, and uh, as we'll discuss with Lois Anderson uh, shortly, this is the longest uh, event in U.S. history. And I think maybe even in the world, we'll try to clarify when she joins us, uh, that has um, been held in Washington for many, many years. So anyway, that's coming up. And we'll talk with her about that and much more when she joins me um, at the top of the hour. I also want to remind you that tomorrow is our Cross International Radiothon. We'll invite you to uh, listen in and would uh, ask you to to contribute to efforts to make sure that children who are hungry can be fed. And Friday, we'll be broadcasting live from Mission Connection. The theme this year is Worth It. The featured speakers include Luis Palau, York Moore, Nick Ripkin, and the founder of Global Hope, Heather Mercer. Uh, I have the opportunity to broadcast live from Mission Connection uh, on Friday from 4 to 6, and then we'll uh, enjoy um, the rest of the event, and we'll have an opportunity to serve as MC as well. By the way, you can go to kpdq.com or the KPDQ mobile app to sign up and find out why getting involved in missions is worth it. And uh, just a reminder, you must pre-register. The event is free, but you must pre-register um, in order to be included. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Well, as you know, we are going to focus on the sanctity of human life throughout next week with the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday coming up and other events surrounding the uh, anniversary of the infamous decisions, Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton. Uh, Oregon Right to Life uh, is holding a March for Life that's coming up on Friday. Uh, the Oregon Right to Life Memorial in March, I should say, on Saturday. Uh, the March for Life is in Washington, D.C. on Friday, and Sanctity of Life Sunday is coming up uh, this weekend as well. We're going to talk with Lois Anderson, who is the executive director of Oregon Right to Life, about all of those things, as well as the Oregon legislative agenda. I should let, mention, though, that more American women are choosing life for their children than ever before. That's according to the latest government data on abortion. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that the U.S. abortion rate fell 26 six percent between 2006 and 2015 to reach an all-time low. The national abortion ratio, which weighs abortions against live births, also declined to record lows. In 2005, 233 abortions occurred for every thousand live births. In 2015, officials documented only 188 abortions per 1,000 live births. Now, one is too many. And so while we can uh, rejoice that the numbers are declining. The fact that they're still taking place at all is reason for great concern. Well, uh, joining us is Lois uh, Anderson. She is the executive director of Oregon Right to Life. She is currently in Washington, D.C., will be participating in the March for Life. And we're just so uh, appreciative of your taking the time to talk with us today. Welcome. Well, I'm I'm really happy to be on with you today, Georgine. Well, it's nighttime here, so. Yeah, tonight. tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I so appreciate your uh, joining us today. First of all, let me ask you to comment on the, the abortion rate that seems to be declining and how that shapes the, uh, the pro-life movement today. Well, we're very encouraged by it. And as you said, one is too many, and I, I don't want to... Um, diminish the value of any life, Mm -hmm. Um, but we are very encouraged to see the numbers dropping, and they're also dropping in Oregon. Um, Even though we don't have any protective legislation, uh, we're so encouraged to see that there is a culture among women who are becoming pregnant 
um, who are choosing life. And um, that's it's an encouraging thing for the whole movement, especially for us in Oregon, to see that happening. And I, I think that we have to look to the efforts that we have been making over the years to educate, to reach out to women, um, the prayer vigils, the marches, all of those things that brought awareness to the damage that abortion does um, and to the humanity of the unborn child. And so I, I really think we're seeing the results. Um, of many years of hard work. You know, I so appreciate you're making that point because I think you're absolutely right. It didn't just happen. This is the result of many years' work. And what we are now experiencing, the pro-life generation, which I believe is is perhaps going to take us over the top in terms of this issue of abortion on demand uh, all across the country that's a result of Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton. Is it a, an exaggeration to refer to young people today as the pro-life generation? Oh, I don't think it is. I think there's polling numbers that tell us that's, the tr- that's true. Um, I think that people look to voting patterns and maybe the attitudes of younger people and think, oh, well, they maybe they're not pro-life. And there may still be a divide between their cultural, um, the culture and their their decisions that they're making for life and, and maybe some of the election results. But the factor means that we are seeing um, an increase in pro-life values among young people. And um, I know I'm going to see thousands and thousands of them on Friday at the March. It's one of the things that really marks Pro, the pro-life movement right now is the number of young people that are joining and becoming active. Well, I have to say it's on my bucket list that someday, <laughs> Lord willing, I would love to participate in the March for Life. I've observed it. I've, I've helped prepare for it, <laughs> but I've never had the opportunity to be a part of it. So I so uh, uh, envy you in the best possible sense, uh, the opportunity to be a part of the March for Life. Now, there are a couple of marches that are taking place in Washington this weekend, the March, of Life be, uh, March for Life being one of them. Uh, I was reading a column earlier today that suggests that most people are only going to be made aware of one of them because the March for Life, despite the fact that it attracts thousands and thousands of people and members of Congress are participating this year from both sides of the aisle, um, it doesn't get the kind of coverage that, for example, the Women's March, if it actually happens this weekend, will get. It's true, and it's just an an ongoing problem, Um, but... You know, we have the Internet, we have Facebook, we have social yeah. media, uh, and so they can't um, they can't keep away people from looking on YouTube or wherever it is where there's going to be a time-lapse video. There's usually somebody that does that, and there will be um, C-SPAN coverage, and those will be posted. And so at least now we have the opportunity to share all of those things with our friends and our sphere of influence um, in spite of of the lack of media coverage, the media blackout. Mm-hmm. I, last year when I went, um, I hadn't really thought about this before, but the March Life is the longest standing human rights, um, uh, I don't want to say protest, but demonstration in the world. I didn't there know that. No, there's nothing else like it. And so, you know, the fact that the media doesn't cover it, they're missing out. I encourage everybody to really share about it. If you see something, you know, use your power that you have on your little phone or your computer to to share what's going on. Their unwillingness to cover it says more about them than it does about the march itself, which is a large event that represents 
a lot of people all across the country. Now, for those of us who have never had the opportunity to attend the March for Life that's held annually in Washington, D.C., describe for us what this event is like. Well, um, you have never seen so many people in one place in your life. It's very colorful. There's lots of different, there's people from all over the world, not just the United States. Uh, there's a lot of banners and beautiful signs that some people handwritten. Um, there's uh, many, many groups from schools, from colleges. Um, there's a very, there's two very large student gatherings that so they'll come and do the march and then there's also conferences and training and um there's they've expanded it so if you come to washington for the march for life there's also a lot of opportunity for other activities as well but they they have a big huge stage and big huge video monitors and and you can see the members of congress and then um, the featured speakers that, that speak and everybody's very cold. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a very cold event. And then, um, once it, once it starts, you just kind of move along with the crowd and enjoy There's there's music groups that are along and people are chanting and singing songs and it's very joyful. It's very peaceful. Uh, it's, in, in spite of the fact that we're memorializing something that's so tragic, it's a group that's full of hope and full of joy. Mm, mm. Uh, well, again, we're talking about the March for Life. That takes place in Washington, D.C. on Friday, and there will be sources where you can uh, see that event as it unfolds. And I should mention, it's probably appropriate that it's a cold event because it seems fitting when you consider uh, the subject of the gathering. But there's also an opportunity for those of us who cannot attend in Washington, D.C. to participate in a similar event here in the Portland metro area. I'm talking about the Oregon Right to Life Memorial and March. That's coming up this Saturday. That's a change of day. And we'll talk more yeah. about uh, that event a bit later in our conversation as well. So don't lament the fact that you can't go to D.C. There's an opportunity to participate in an event that's been going on for many, many years here in the state of Oregon as well. And I'm certain there are similar events in our uh, the state of Washington. We're going to take a break here in just a few moments, but we're talking with Lois Anderson. She is executive director of Oregon Right to Life. She's talking to us from Washington, D.C. She's there to participate in the March for Life. One day I'm going to be there too. I'll make sure I have a warm coat to wear for the event. <laughs> We're going to uh, talk about uh, that event as well as just the Sanctity of Human Life Day that's coming up on Sunday and the agenda for the Oregon legislature. I think a lot of people look at the makeup of the legislature and wonder, is there any room or hope for any pro-life legislation? So we will uh, talk a little bit about that as the uh, legislature uh, has convened. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We will be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A poll released on Tuesday, just ahead of the 46th March for Life, shows that the majority of Americans support tighter restrictions on abortion and would even like to see the landmark Roe versus Wade decision reinterpreted to allow more restrictions. Well, the annual survey is conducted by Marist in partnership with the Knights of Columbus, a Catholic fraternal organization, and it reveals that three quarters of Americans oppose taxpayer funding of abortion abroad, even though 
55% of Americans polled identified as pro-choice. We're continuing a conversation with Lois Anderson. She is the executive director of Oregon Right to Life. She is uh, talking with us from Washington, D.C., where she is preparing to be a participant in the March for Life. And it's uh, just a joy to have you back on the on the program. Let's talk about the Oregon Right to Life Memorial and March that's coming up this year on a Saturday rather than Sunday. Yes, well, it's it's a wonderful event. Um, it's the program starts at two thirty, but come on down early because we'll have um, representatives from many different pro life ministries. Uh, one of the the things that we like to focus on for this event in particular is the unity of the pro life movement. Um, and so there'll be an opportunity to speak with people from different pro life ministries, and also we have a great band. Um, that plays music beforehand, and then we'll start at 2.30. We have um, some wonderful speakers, including uh, Archbishop Alexander Sample. We have um, Mark Estes from Mana House uh, Church, Mana Church. They've, <laughs> it used to be City Bible. They've changed their name. I'm still getting um, used to that as well. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have um, Becky from StandUpGirl.com, which is a really wonderful online ministry mm-hmm. for abortion-minded girls. Um, along with some students and and some other folks that are speaking. And then uh, we will have the March, our Oregon March for Life, which will um, march through the streets of Portland. And one of the reasons why we changed it to Saturday, first of all, we took a survey. Um, It's been on Sunday for years and years. Mm -hmm. We took a survey and got some feedback that um, there were people that, for a lot of people, Sunday is a very busy day. It's full of church and ministry and family, and, and um, we appreciated that people were taking time out of their day. And Saturday is also busy, but um, what we were finding is there are fewer and fewer people downtown in on Sundays. And one of the reasons why we do this event is to bear witness Um and we can't really bear witness when there's nobody around. <laughs> so we're going to we're, <laughs> we're going to try it on Saturday and we'd love to have people's feedback about it um and we we try to we're adding uh we just try to add some different things um that will be slightly different. We have some beautiful new signs that have a wonderful pro-life message on them. Um and then we also uh have some we're going to be giving a shout out from the podium so if you're coming and you're coming from a school or a pro-life group or a church uh, we'd love you to email the office so that we can acknowledge them that you've come and participated. Oh, wonderful. Um, yeah. We're talking about the Oregon Right to Life Memorial and the March for Life that follows. Uh, if you have felt quite isolated as a pro-life person in your community, this is a great opportunity to gather with others from all over the state. And it really is remarkable to just take a look around and uh, to just remember the events that took place when Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton decisions were made, uh, and to think about the progress, to remember those whose lives have been lost as a consequence of these infamous decisions, and then to hear from those that inspire us to continue in this journey. Now, I would consider myself an old-timer in the the pro-life movement, and I'm always encouraged by the young people, their enthusiasm, their knowledge, uh, their ability to articulate uh, their convictions, and the fact that they're passionate about uh, speaking the truth in love. So it's a wonderful opportunity to come together with like-minded people and just uh, bear witness, as you described it a few moments ago. So true, Georgine. And we appreciate um, how how you have been involved for so many years and 
um, in the movement as well as in this event. Well, I think back to when I first became involved. In fact, this may sound very naive to a lot of people, but I'm grateful that my innocence was protected for many, many years. When I first found out what abortion was and how it was uh, how it was um, done, I was I was outraged. I was working for a congressman at the time and I, I was not involved in the movement at all. I didn't know much about the practice of abortion. I was outraged. And he and I, in fact, I believe God strategically placed me in that office so that he and I could have those conversations. But um, immediately upon leaving that office, I started working in the pro-life movement with Oregon Right to Life. And uh, for many years off and on have done different things uh, with the organization. And it's amazing to me when I think back to those early days uh, and I look um, ahead to today, I am so encouraged and grateful uh, for those who have carried on the movement and to see young people who are continuing uh, to share the message and to do to do it so well. Uh, and they're influencing their peers in ways that I could not have imagined way back in the beginning when the hostility was um, much greater than I think in some ways uh, than it is today. So kudos uh, to the pro-life well, very, movement. Very, very well said. And I, I am constantly encouraged by the young people that have um, come into the to the movement and how they come with new and wonderful ideas and um, an articulate passion. And they're fearless. I, I appreciate that so much. Uh, they're fearless. This is what I believe. This is what's true. This is what I know. And this is why we should reconsider the course that our country has taken. Hey, <laughs> you, you young people right. go for it. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about the um, the Sanctity of Life Day. Some people think, you know, it's been many, many years since Roe versus Wade was decided by the Supreme Court. Thirteen robed gentlemen at the time made that decision. Uh, why should we um, continue to emphasize the value of life? What difference does it make? Uh, what is the purpose of returning to this issue uh, year after year? Uh, I was talking with Larry Gadbaugh, who is the uh, director of... Um, Oh, the name just escaped me. But the Pregnancy First Resource Center. Thank you. First, First Image yeah. and the Pregnancy <laughs> Resource Centers of the Portland Metro. See, I am an old timer. <laughs> the, the metro area. And we talked a little bit about compassion fatigue, the fact that people uh, who are continuing to try to communicate the same message can find themselves worn out. Uh, why do you think it's important for us to continue to focus our attention on and shine a bright light on the sanctity and value of life? Well, I think... We just have to we have to focus on the the daily tragedy um, that that every every day, including sometimes on Saturdays and Sundays, abortionists um, are playing their trade. Vulnerable women and um, are walking into these facilities, and abortions are happening and ending the lives of, of innocent children. And it's happening every day. And so, for us, even though it has been a long time and it has been a long battle. Uh, we just can't afford to quit because we know what the truth is. And for, for us to be silent in any way, um, well, is wrong. And so I think that these dates are important to help us remember, to hopefully to give us some inspiration um, and some reviving as well mm-hmm. as, as, of, as remembering the lives are lost um, to also just be together. Like you said, it's, it's, Sometimes you feel isolated and you can go and you can be with a big group of people and um, you can uh, spend some time thinking about what it is that we're going to do for another year. And 
Yeah, we had you. We're going to talk about the legislature in a little bit, but we did have a very tough election night, um, and it it can be very discouraging. But what I know to do is just to do the next thing well, and and the next thing well is for people to come down to show up to enjoy each other's company, to march in Portland, to bear witness that we still are fighting this injustice, and we will continue to do it until uh, abortion is illegal again. Mm. Well, I'm so reminded of the scripture that you alluded to, uh, that we are not to grow weary in doing well. Uh, We may not win all of the battles, but we stand for righteousness because that's the right thing to do. And I so appreciate Oregon Right to Life helping to bring us all together for the purpose of doing just that. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with Lois Anderson. She is the executive director of Oregon Right to Life. She's in Washington, D.C. to participate in the March for Life. That's coming up on Friday. That's in Washington. And then uh, the Oregon Right to Life Memorial and uh, March is coming up here in the Portland area on Saturday, 2.30 at uh, Pioneer Courthouse Square. And Sanctity of Human Life Day this Sunday. Many of you may hear more about that in your church. Churches. When we come back, we're going to talk about the legislature. Is there any hope of any kind of pro-life progress? We'll find out in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're continuing my conversation with Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life. Did you know that there were a total of 8,506 abortions in the state of Oregon? In 2017, the last year for which these numbers are available, 3,593 abortions were funded by taxpayers. Because of a 1984 Oregon Supreme Court ruling, there are no limits or restrictions on how many free abortions a woman can have under the Oregon Health um, uh, Plan. And the majority of abortions in Oregon are performed on women ages 20 to 29. Is there anything that can be done Uh, to help support women so that they don't feel the need for abortion? Is there any legislative hope of uh, influencing uh, how the practice is administered here in this state? Again, Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life. Well, you mentioned a moment ago that this was um, a challenging election year in terms of uh, the Oregon, the makeup of the Oregon legislature. Um, Describe a bit how the the election impacted the pro-life uh, influence within the uh, the legislature? Well, the biggest development was that um, the uh, the Democrats, which unfortunately in Oregon means pro-abortion um, leadership, achieved what is called a supermajority. Uh, so Oregon, um, Oregon voters uh, voted to require um, a supermajority of votes. And I always forget whether it's or five eighths or what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it says it's a higher percentage for for revenue um, to raise revenue. Now people may say, well, what does that have to do with abortion? What what it allowed was for um, even though the Republicans were not in majority, they were able to be at the table and negotiate things. And so there were times when we were be able to stop bad legislation. Um, and we were able to have some kind of influence at the table because there were wonderful pro-life legislators who who were in the room and in political political speak. Um, but with supermajorities, they no longer need any Republican votes for revenue increases, um, which is what they were usually trying to to go for. So there's no negotiation um, on that front. There there are other tools, obviously, um, in in just providing a lot of 
input from constituents. Um, and so we've, it, we've lost a political goal. And it, it also was hard because, you know, we worked very hard to try to elect, um, re-elect Mark Helfrich in the, well, actually, I guess he was just up for election because he was appointed, but in Hood River and he lost. And then there were several other races where um, we, we lost pro-life seats. Um, but we did have an unprecedented number of legislators, he was nine, who either decided not to run for re-election and then had replacements appointed, and all but one of those were elected, uh, and they were all pro-life. So there, there were some. There's always a little bit of light in the in the darkness, but the bottom line is it leaves us without a whole lot of tools to try mm-hmm. to um, pass anything. Certainly, and of course, the re-election of Kate Brown um, makes that uh, in pretty much impossible. But um, also, just in the in the the sausage making of the legislature, we've we've lost a tool. So. It's not. It's not a very good story. <laughs> yeah. Honestly. Well, that gives us some things to to pray about. Um, yes, for sure. Do you anticipate any significant challenges um, to a pro life perspective in this coming legislature, or will it be yes. pretty much status quo? No, we we do. Now, I do want to mention that we are going ahead and and introducing some pro life legislation. We're not going to stop doing that. We're going to keep introducing it. Uh, we have our great pro-life legislators are going to co-sponsor it and sponsor it and ask for hearings, and we're we're still we're still going to do that. We're not going to give that up just because mm-hmm. it, it may or may not happen. Um, but as you know, because we talked about it about um, this the advanced directive and the end of life issues that we have been fighting, um, we just have seen a piece of legislation came across our desk actually this morning um, that is is has sweeping expansion of physician assisted suicide in Oregon. Um, we we are still in the process of getting our heads around it. Um, the central aspect of this legislation, it's House Bill 2232, would be to remove the requirement that you have a six month diagnosis and basically would open up to any person with a terminal diagnosis. Hmm. No, it's pretty, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was our, that's our reaction as yeah. well. So it's really, really important for everyone that's listening um, to please stay in touch with us. Sign up on our email list, um, go to our website, keep, keep in touch if you're on, on Facebook. That is how we're going to be communicating this. We will not have enough lead time to send you a postcard. You know, we, we just are not going to be in the know. Um, so this is going to be, we'll find out things very, in a very um, short term, and we'll need to communicate with people. And we're just going to ask you to do it again, you know, call yeah. your legislators, send those emails. Um, and especially if you have any personal stories that anyone is willing um, to share, that would be very helpful and powerful for us to be able to um uh, have opportunities to share those stories in the le- in whether it's in a hearing or just um, in other kinds of communications. Yeah, yeah, email or letter or something. By the way, yeah. the website is ortl. That's Oregon 
uh, right to life, ortl dot org for um, for information and to sign up for that email list, because it is important for us to be made aware. While the makeup of the legislature might not be predominantly pro-life, uh, you certainly have uh, the opportunity to influence individual lawmakers that represent you in your respective district, whether that's in the House or the Senate. And we should take full advantage of access that we have to them to express our concerns about uh, issues uh, that reflect our core values. Again, the two things that were mentioned, the advanced directive is likely to be back up. And then this expanded position assisted suicide 2232. That's uh, that's not altogether surprising, I suppose, but it's very disappointing uh, to be aware of these things and how we can communicate with lawmakers. And they want to hear from you. They really do. They want to hear from people in their district. So <laughs> give them what they want and, and uh, communicate. <laughs> so that's a great way to go about um, doing that. Now, as the leader of Oregon Right to Life, and you represent many pro-lifers who are working in all kinds of ways, um, are you encouraged as you look forward? We mentioned the pro-life generation that increasingly the numbers indicate that people are favorable to restricting abortion, to revisiting Roe versus Wade, and a number of encouraging signs. Are you generally speaking encouraged? Yes, I am. I mean, I, I think that we're looking at a Supreme Court that could very well um, if not overturn Roe v. Wade, certainly carve out some additional restrictions on Roe v. Wade. Um, there, there are some policies in place federally and just nationwide. Um, there are many, many places where they're still passing pro-life legislation where they um, have entire counties, sometimes entire states that are without abortion facilities. I mean, it just, um, those, we are making moves forward. And also just, um, sense, and I think the younger people are definitely um, attracted to this as well, is that we are providing so much more care and services for women who are in unexpected pregnancies or who think they may be pregnant um, than what the pro-abortion side has to offer. The pregnancy centers and um, sites like Stepgirl and, and just is reaching out in love reaching out with acceptance and um, to walk a woman through and her whole family through whatever the crisis is. Um, and that, that is what gives me, what gives me hope. And um, we'll, we'll figure out the politics, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but that one-on-one um, service to people and the organizations that are providing structure to that. And um, we're, we're also, you know, advocating for their ability to do that as well. And we're concerned about conscience rights. We're concerned about the freedom to to um, continuing and our freedom to act in a pro-life way. And so that's kind of our end of making sure that people are free to um, provide those kind of services, whether it's in a medical um, facility or whether it's in, you know, to your neighbor to help people make life affirming, life sustaining decisions. Absolutely. And we'll continue to do that. And I am very hopeful. Well, Lois, I want to remind our listeners that the March in Memorial here in Oregon is at Pioneer Courthouse Square right here in Portland on Saturday, January the 19th, not Sunday, as has traditionally been the case, but this Saturday, that's the 19th at 2.30 p.m. You're encouraged to come early because there are booths there for you to learn more about the pro-life movement. If you're thinking about how can I plug in, this is a great way to 
uh, consider that. And you can also let them know I'm coming with my youth group, for example, and you can go to the website, ORTL.org, and let them know, and you'll get an announcement from the platform if I understand that correctly. Yes, that's right. Well, Lois, thank you so much for all that you do as Director of Oregon Right to Life. Enjoy yourself at the uh, March for Life. It seems a little odd to say that, but I think you know what I mean. And uh, yeah. we hope that uh, many of our listeners will uh, will be there at the memorial in March on Saturday. Yes, thank you very much, Georgine. Appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Lois Anderson, Executive Director for Oregon Right to Life. And again, that website, ORTL.org, you can learn All you need to know about the legislature, about uh, the memorial in March, and much more. Up next, we're going to uh, talk about a piece of legislation that was slipped into the governor's agenda for 2019, a home visitation program for the families of new infants, all new infants. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. One of the more ambitious items that was tucked into the governor's agenda for 2019 is a home visitation program for the families of all new infants in the state of Oregon. If it's enacted, Oregon would be the first state to provide up to three visits by a nurse or a similar health professional to every family with a new child. Now, we don't know how that's going to be paid for, but there are other issues that I I think outweigh even that. North Carolina has run a pilot program providing a similar service, but no state has a program as universal as the one envisioned for Oregon. The proposal is in Governor Kate Brown's budget for 2019-2021. The proposed budget by Ways and Means, the legislative budget writing body, hasn't yet uh, been set, but one of the people running that committee, Senator Elizabeth Steiner Hayward of Beaverton, said universal home visits are a priority for her. Well, this is how it would work. You get pregnant, you have a baby, the state shows up at your house. Not once, but three times. Make sure the tea or the coffee is ready. Uh, Dr. Alana Braun at Oregon Health Sciences University said she hasn't seen the legislation yet, but she has an idea of how universal home visits might work. She's a pediatrician, a member of the Oregon Pediatric Society, and formerly worked as a pediatrician in Hillsboro. If the program becomes a reality, all families, regardless of income or area of residence, could see three visits from a nurse. They likely could come when the baby is three days old, two weeks old, two months old. At the three-day mark, the visit would um, could focus on how basic, uh, or I should say basics as weight loss, uh, for example. Now, my guess is, in addition to seeing how much the baby weighs, they're going to be kind of looking around the house. Do you have Bibles on the shelf? What kind of family is this? At two weeks, the baby's weight again could be checked. Babies could um, get the heel stick, the pinprick drawing of blood that checks for metabolic indicators of problems, which at this point show no outward symptoms. Uh, At two months, nurses and families could discuss the many vaccines that the baby faces. Now, is it limited to these medical um, issues, one wonders? Well, that's the how, Braun said. Uh, There's a why, too, to check on the baby, but also to check, you guessed it, on the parents. Having a new baby at home is stressful for everyone, regardless of income, she says. It's a time of life when most anybody needs some help, and the state is right there to help you. Nurses could check for signs of postpartum depression, help with uh, questions about breastfeeding, check to make sure there's a safe place for the baby to sleep and to be bathed and much, much more. The idea of being universal throughout Oregon would be good, Braun says, because not everyone has the same easy access to a pediatrician or hospital. So it's not needs based. It, uh, if you have access, if things are going well, it doesn't matter. The state's going to show up. Uh, Not everybody lives close to other family members, so nurses can help bridge that gap, too, she says. 
Well, Governor Brown included universal home visits in a September 2018 document called The Children's Agenda, Pathways Out of Poverty for Children to Achieve Their Full Potential, although it's not limited to children living in poverty. It was part of the election campaign she won handily in November. The proposal calls for ensuring that all Oregonians have access to health insurance coverage and to increase overall health outcome for children. One way to do that, she wrote, support home visitation programs that provide support to new parents and put them and their children on an early path to success. Now, again, that early path to success is not just simply passing a couple of medical tests. They want to make sure you're a fit parent and how they define that. Um, may be uh, somewhat questionable. Well, the executive director of the Coalition of Local Health Officials said Washington County hasn't been part of a pilot uh, pride, has not been part of a pilot for the program. As far as I know, Lincoln County in Oregon is the only public health department who has implemented Family Connects, the universal home visiting program Oregon is exploring thus far. It's uh, the name of the program run by Duke University and piloted in North Carolina. Uh, the director of the Oregon Health Authority said some uh, universal home visits is a priority or are a priority for the agency because it's a priority for the governor. This would be good for all kids, he says. Uh, it's not something that people would uh, with problems need. It's for everyone. It's a big deal. So it doesn't matter if you have problems or not. In fact, you may not know you have problems that the state might just identify as a problem you didn't think was one. Well, implementation of the statewide program would be phased in over the next six years. The initial ask is $4 million from this year's legislature. It would be used to support statewide infrastructure, to support the entire program, and to provide resources to serve an estimated 10,000 Medicaid families with matching federal funds. Uh, The eventual goal would be to serve all Medicaid families in all communities. Uh, The ask is likely to find a receptive ear, says uh, Senator Steiner Hayward, who's uh, said this is a priority. She's a physician, also one of the three people co-chairing the Budget Writing and Ways and Means Committee uh, this year. She says she's familiar with the North Carolina project. It's a two to one uh, return on investment in the first year due to a fewer emergency room visits. The model Family Connects requires a universal approach for fidelity to the model, Steiner says. Lawmakers and staff will be having conversations with commercial insurance carriers about uh, chipping in to ensure sufficient funds to cover all women with new babies. The plan, she says, is to roll out the program over the uh, at least four years to be sure they get it. Right. We'll be uh, revisiting that with uh, greater details and some questions I have about whether or not we're all favorable to the idea that the state would arrange to have a home visit and uh, what kind of criterion they would consider acceptable for you and your new infant. Hmm. By the way, this isn't the first time this has come up in the Oregon legislature. You might recall several years back uh, it failed, uh, not so much because it was Uh, not embraced at least by one side of the aisle, but was more of a financial uh, issue, if I recall, at the time. But we'll certainly follow it up this time around. And given the fact that there is a supermajority among Democrats uh, in the legislature this time around, it's not likely that the kind of uh, opposition or, I think, important questions that were raised uh, last time will be uh, uh, given a fair hearing this time around. Anyway, we'll follow more closely uh, in the days ahead. Well, tomorrow on the program, we are looking forward to our friends from... um, Cross International. Uh, they are going to join us here in studio for their annual Radiothon, and uh, it gives you an opportunity to learn more about kids who are, quite frankly, just hungry. They don't have access to the safety net that we enjoy here. They 
um, need our help and cross international folks are going to join us in studio and we can uh, share their stories with you. So I hope you are preparing even now to give generously to these um, these children. On Friday, we're going to be broadcasting live from Mission Connection, as we have done for many years. I'm looking forward to that. And you'll hear from some of the workshop presenters. There are so many incredible workshops, great um, booths that are there for you to learn more people to talk to. If you're thinking about missions, if you want to perhaps um, have a better, clearer understanding of where you might be called, or if you want to reinforce uh, the calling that you already are convinced of and connect with organizations that reflect your priorities. This is a great opportunity uh, to learn more. Now, this event is free. It always has been. It always will be. It is sponsored by area churches, and we are so grateful for that unity in the body of Christ that produces this event. But you do need to pre-register. That means you need to go online to ChristianConnection.com, Christian Connection with an X. Uh, you can register there. You can select which workshops you want to attend. You can learn more about uh, the speakers and all of that. And we would encourage you to do just that. But we're going to be broadcasting live on uh, Friday. And then I've been asked to help MC, and we'll have an opportunity to uh, play a part uh, for the remainder of the conference. So I'm looking forward to that as well. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.